Hear the gospel of God in Christ from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, What I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Good morning. As you heard in Fred's prayer, Frida Peltier passed away yesterday afternoon, so be praying for George as he learns to live life without his beloved Frida, wife of 53 years, together. Jeannie and I recently saw the movie The Impossible. Many of you have seen it. It's the story of one family, the Bennetts, who were caught in that terrible crisis of the tsunami that hit in 2004. They were vacationing in Thailand, and they were hit by this tsunami and thrown into the water, and they were tumbling through it as debris was hitting them and hurting them, and it was a horrific scene in that movie as they're struggling to somehow find their way to solid ground. I think about Mother's Day and in that movie there's portrayed the mother, Maria, who hears the cries of her son Lucas and is desperate to find him. She finds him and connects up with him and though she's severely injured, she grabs onto him and they make their way finally to solid ground until she finally knows that he's safe and she collapses. What a wonderful picture of Mother's Day and a mother's relentless love. There may be no greater force on earth than a mother's love. And it's a picture for us of God's relentless love for us who was willing to do whatever it took even give up his life for us something else that struck me in that whole scene that those early scenes in the movie is they were desperate to find solid ground somewhere to stand where they would feel safe and solid something to stand on and only those who found solid ground could survive Many didn't. 
Over 275,000 perished in that incredible, credible tsunami that hit so many different islands and places. The world throws at us as believers a tsunami of sin and evil, confusion and lies. You see, this is an incredibly unstable world. And if we try to find our footing on it, we will not stand as believers in Jesus Christ. We have to find something solid to stand on or we will get knocked down. So how do we as believers find something solid to stand on? Well, today we begin 1 Corinthians 15 as we continue working through this marvelous book of Paul's. This is the last major topic that Paul deals with in this book. As we've seen, he's dealt with a number of major issues in this church that was struggling, a, a new church that was struggling to live out their faith in a crazy world where they kept getting hit by all kinds of things. And Paul's dealt with things like division in the church, choosing sides, and how they've bought into the wisdom of the world, and how they've gotten confused with their own sexual being, and how they deal with their physical bodies, and they're suing one another, and they have confusion about marriage. They're struggling in a number of areas, including how they handle the Lord's Supper and how they live out spiritual gifts and all of these things and more we've talked about over the past few months. But now he gets to a place where I think this may be the most important thing. He saved the best for last because he wants to focus on the resurrection. You see, I think our understanding of the resurrection... And in particular, our own resurrection, certainly Christ, but our own someday. Our understanding of that is critical to us being able to stand firmly in this life. And the Corinthians have some clear and deep misunderstandings of the resurrection. And as I observe the church today, the evangelical world, I think many of us have some misunderstandings as well. I think our theology is a little off in the resurrection and what God has planned for us. So I think this will be an appropriate chapter for us to spend time in because I think many of the Corinthians had a pagan and unbiblical view of the resurrection. I think many of us today do as well. What it led to in the Corinthians... A misunderstanding of the resurrection was attitudes like we saw back in chapter 6 where they were saying, well, hey, the body doesn't matter. You know, I'm going to shed this thing anyway. <laughs> so I can eat all I want. I can have sex with prostitutes. I can do all kinds of things because it really doesn't matter what I do with this body because I'm going to leave it behind. And Paul goes on to say in this chapter, that's wrong. That's a misunderstanding. What we do in this body really really matters. But he begins in our section today, before he goes on to talk more about that, to say, you guys need to go back to the simple gospel. Just the simple gospel and make sure your feet are firmly planted on that simple gospel. Because if you understand the simple gospel, you'll be able to stand when the tsunamis of life come and hit you. 
So let's pray and then let's look together at what this simple gospel is that Paul explains. Lord, thank you that you have saved us. That you've given us truth, this simple gospel. You, You have come, you've died for our sins and you were raised on our behalf and because of that we can stand firm in life. Lord, today... These are familiar words to us, but may you drive them deeper into our hearts today that we might truly not just understand intellectually the simple gospel, but we might embrace it as never before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He begins in the first few verses to describe, the first two verses actually, how the gospel changes lives. He reminds the Corinthians, hey, remember what the gospel did in your life so that you can go back to it. But he begins with something very interesting, his first comment. He says, now I make known to you. Your translation may say, I remind you. But more literally, it's make known to you as if he's telling them something they've never heard before. And he's saying, oh, let me make known to you the gospel. By the way, the gospel which I preached to you, you received it. (laughs) It changed your life. (laughs) But now I'm having to make it known to you because you're living as though you don't quite get it. So let me take you back to the simple gospel. I'm reminding you of it because apparently you've forgotten And he uses some words to describe it, and I want to highlight those because I think they help us understand the gospel and how it changes lives. First of all, he says, the gospel which we preached to you, which I preached to you. You see, the gospel is something that needs to be preached. It's something we communicate. Yes, we live it out, but it's a truth that needs to be spoken, verbalized. It's not just something we live. It's a clear message that we can and should tell others. It's a message that changes lives and it needs to be spoken. I want to read something for you that says this. One very clever and popular quote we often knock around among ourselves is, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Right? You've heard that? It's always attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, founder of the Franciscan Order, and is intended to say that proclaiming the gospel by example is more virtuous than actually proclaiming with voice. But here's the fact. Our good Francis never said such a thing. (laughs) None of his disciples, early or later biographers, have these words coming from his mouth. It doesn't show up in any of his writings. Our man clearly spent a great deal of time using his words when he preached. Actually, St. Francis was an amazing preacher. Sometimes he preached in up to five villages a day, often outdoors in the country. Francis often spoke from a bale of straw or granary doorway. In town, he would climb on a box or up steps in a public building. He preached to any who gathered to hear the strange but fiery little preacher from Assisi. He was sometimes so animated and passionate in his delivery that his feet moved as if he were dancing. <laughs> I highlight that for you just to say, look, don't, don't think somehow, oh yeah, well, it doesn't matter what I say, it's how I live. Well, that's important, but Paul clearly says the gospel is 
preached, it's proclaimed, it must be spoken. It's a message that must be spoken. And I'll tell you, for many of us, certainly as for me, this is convicting. Because sometimes I can take the easy road and just say, oh, well, hopefully my life will show Christ. But Paul's saying, you've got to speak it, folks. You've got to proclaim it. So he says, the gospel is which I preached to you, and then you received it. And later in verse 11, he says, it's the gospel that they believed. You see, the gospel is something that's communicated and it needs to be not only understood, but to be received or believed, embraced. It has to be embraced as true for me. There's many who just understand it, but it hasn't changed their lives. If someone came to you and said, guess what? I just bought you a beautiful new house. Just what you've always wanted. And it's yours. Here's the title. You're free to move in. And you said, wow, that is great. Thanks. And then he said, yeah, but I think I'll keep living in my car. <laughs> That'd be foolish, right? And it would mean you, you may own the house, but you haven't moved in. You haven't embraced it. You haven't changed your life by actually embracing and believing that this is mine and now I will move in and live in the realm of that new house. So is the gospel. It's something that we just don't understand, but it means we move in to gospel living. We begin to live in this new kingdom where Jesus is Lord. He's our Savior and our Lord. And if that's true, everything changes. I've moved into a new place, a new way of living. That, that's what it means to embrace the gospel. I let go of my old life and embrace the new. Then he says, this gospel which you received and in which you have come to stand, to stand firm. Like in the tsunami, finally finding someplace firm to stand. Same word as used in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, where it talks about the struggles we face, the spiritual warfare we're involved in. And verse 11 says this, Put on the full armor of God so you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The tsunamis we face. He says the gospel is what allows us to stand firm. It gives us stability in life. It allows us to stand in a place of God's love and forgiveness. We move into that place of where God dwells in us and through us. And we begin living in that reality. And it allows us to stand firm. The Corinthians had come to stand, Paul says, but apparently they were now confused and they were being knocked off that firm perch. He says not only that, but the gospel is preached, it, you received it, you've come to stand in it, and now through it you are being saved. It's a present tense. It should be translated, you are being saved. It's, it's the transformation that happens in a Christian's life. The gospel, when we truly understand it and we stand upon the reality of it, then it begins to transform our lives as we live in the reality of that new dwelling place, living the gospel where 
He is beginning to transform us and change us into his likeness. Past, present, future, the gospel impacts in our lives. You see, everything's different when we embrace the gospel. But he says something then that's a little challenging. He says, oh, you are being saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, this doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. That's clearly not what Paul's saying here. But he's saying, if you want to really experience the fullness of the gospel, you've got to hold it fast. Continue holding on to it. Imagine driving down the road, holding on to the steering wheel and thinking, you know, I've held this for a long time, but I'm kind of tired of holding it. Um, I think I'll do some other things while I'm driving down the road and send some texts, you know, make a phone call, maybe eat some lunch. What would happen? <laughs> You'd crash and burn. It would not be a pretty sight. And that's kind of what Paul's saying here. He says you've got to continue holding on to the gospel because that's what directs your life and gets you where you need to be and keeps you on the right place. So that's why he's so concerned that they understand the simple gospel so that they hang on to it and don't get distracted by things that would take them away from their stability, their standing firm in Christ so the point of these first couple of verses is that the gospel is not just some nice truth, but it really, really changes your life when you embrace it. So what is it? Can you articulate the gospel? What would you say it is? If someone asked you, oh, what is the gospel? Gospel means good news, but what is the good news? Well, let me just say that what the gospel is not the gospel is not God loves you and wants you to have good self-esteem. <laughs> uh, by the way, there's been a book written, I have it on my shelf actually, by a famous TV preacher called Self-Esteem who says that very thing. This is what the gospel is. God loves you and wants you to have good self-esteem. Now, if we have our theology, you know, pretty much in place, we kind of laugh at that. We think, yeah, that's not the gospel. But I think many of us live as though that's the truth, that somehow that's what I need to stand on. As long as I feel good about myself and my relationship with God, then I'm okay. Then I'm stable. But if my feelings change or if I'm not sure, I don't feel like God loves me, then somehow I'm knocked off my firm place. And that's why Paul's so concerned that we get it, the simple gospel. So what is the simple gospel? What is the content of the gospel? Well, Paul makes four assertions, but really it comes down to two. He summarizes it by two things, but really, let, let me highlight those. Verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance. This is it. This is bottom line. This is most important. What I also received, so Paul received it from Jesus, this gospel, that, number one, Christ died for our sins. That's it. According to the scriptures, he says, yes, but Christ died for our sins. Christ, the Messiah, God himself, chose to enter our world and to live and to die on a 
cruel, horrible cross for us, for our sins. He took our sins on himself. He substituted himself for us. You and I should have been on that cross. But he went instead. See, the gospel begins with what he did by dying for our sins. We deserve to die, but he died in our place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the end of the chapter, verse 21, Paul writes this, He, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a mind-blowing statement he makes there, that, that all this gunk that is us, this sin, this rebellion against God, being the enemy of God, was heaped on Jesus. And he not only carried it, but he became sin. Somehow in the great mystery, he became that evil, the rebelliousness, the sin, and bore it on the cross for me, for you, for each one of us. He died for our sins. He substituted himself for us. He took our place. Praise God for that. That is foundational. That is the first assertion of what the gospel is all about. And he wants us to stand firmly on that. Christ died for our sins. And it says he died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, there are a number of specific scriptures we could look to, but I really think what Paul has in mind here is that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus' coming to die for our sins. Think all the way back to Genesis where Adam and Eve are sent out of the Garden of Eden. And what did God do? He killed animals, sacrificed animals, and clothed Adam and Eve in their skins. The first sacrifice. Over and over throughout the scriptures, there's sacrifice. And then you get the law with all the different elements of the sacrificial system that said an animal had to die, blood had to be spilt if there is to be any forgiveness of sins. For without the spilling of blood, there is no remission of sins. And all through the Old Testament, you see that and you get to wonderful passages like Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 and 6 where it says but he was pierced through for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray each has turned to his own way but the Lord has called the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, all the Old Testament points to the death of Jesus for us. It happened according to the scriptures. This was God's plan from the very beginning of time. The central event in history is his dying for our sins and then raising again. We'll get to that in a moment. The second assertion he makes is that, oh, and he was buried, which I think just is the proof that he died. If you don't bury someone who isn't dead. <laughs> but Jesus was buried. He lay in the tomb for three days. Then he gives a second major assertion. And he was raised. 
He was raised. His resurrection, he rose from the grave. His resurrection is foundational to the gospel. The gospel is Christ died for our sins and he was raised. That's the elements of the simple gospel. Everyone dies, but no one was raised in all of history like Jesus was. He died, but then bodily rose from the dead. He pro- that proves that death is conquered, that we don't need to fear it anymore, that Jesus is Lord today and demands our allegiance. So Paul writes things like he does in Philippians chapter 2, where he says this, starting in verse 9. Because Jesus went to the cross and died for us, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. He reigns. And the gospel says he was raised from the dead. He now is alive. And if that's true, then everything changes, right? Because Jesus is Lord. He's my Lord. He's not just my Savior, but he is the living Lord. It says, too, that he was raised on the third day. Again, proof that he'd been dead for some time. And again, Paul says, according to the Scriptures... Again, this is all through the Old Testament, how God was working to raise people from the dead. The picture of that is given in many places throughout the Old Testament. Think about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And Isaac was essentially dead on that altar. And God provided a sacrifice in his place. And Isaac was essentially, the picture is that he was raised. Think of Joseph, people like that who was given over to death by his brothers and yet, in a sense, resurrected and his brothers met him again and God had brought him back to life. And on and on, that picture is over and over again in the Old Testament preparing us for this resurrection of the living Lord. And, of course, Daniel describes that where Jesus is ascended, chapter 7, to be with the Father again. So it's all through the Old Testament. And Jesus, I would have loved to hear his message when he walked on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples and shared with them the truth throughout the Old Testament. It's described this way in Luke 24, verse 25 and 26. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ... Now listen to how Jesus summarizes the gospel. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things, number one, and two, to enter into his glory? Simple gospel. Christ died for our sins and was raised. Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. What did he explain? He explained... He died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and he was raised according to the scriptures. And then the proof of that, he mentioned six individuals or groups who saw him. He was seen. He appeared first to Cephas, to Peter, 
Then he appeared to the twelve. Then it says to more than 500 brethren at one time. And just to give some evidence of that, Paul says this. Oh, by the way, in case you're wondering about this resurrection of Christ, it happened about 20 years before his writing at this point. He says, most of the people who saw him are still alive. You want proof? Go talk to them. (laughs) There's plenty of proof that he is alive. And then it says he appeared to James. Jesus' brother, who, remember, was a skeptic and didn't believe he was the Messiah until he saw the risen Lord and he became one of the apostles. And then he appeared to all the apostles, which included the twelve, but then a few others that have been called apostles in the scriptures. And last of all, he says, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, to Paul, also. He says, you want proof? Here's proof. Now, many have read this and they say, well, he gives a lot of witnesses, but he doesn't mention any women. I mean, the women were the first ones to see him alive at the tomb, right? Why doesn't Paul mention women? Well, it isn't because he doesn't think women have a lot to offer. He obviously does. He said a lot about that in this book. But he doesn't mention women because in a Roman court of law in that time, a woman's testimony was not acceptable as legal testimony. And so Paul's giving a legal proof that Jesus rose from the dead. So that's why he mentions the men and not the women, although of the 500 who saw him, the disciples, probably many, if not most of those, were women. Then he says, last of all to me. Last of all. Paul was the last one to see the risen Christ here on earth when he was on the road to Damascus and the risen Christ appeared to him there. No one else would see him again on earth until he returns. This is contrary to some sects, Mormonism and others, who say, oh, well, Joseph Smith saw the risen Christ, etc. Well, that's not true. Paul was the last of all. And as a genuine apostle, he saw the risen Christ, but he described it this way. He says, as one untimely born. Literally, it's, like an abortion, like one who was stillborn or somehow didn't experience that full gestation period. I think that's what he's saying here. He said, yeah, I was going my own way. I was persecuting the church of God. I didn't have the gestation period of the other apostles who got to walk with Jesus on earth. My life was turned around in an instant but I saw the risen Christ on that road to Damascus and he taught me in the desert and my life was changed forever. So folks, I I know sometimes we think, well, that's too simple, but it's not. That is the simple gospel that he wants us to stand on and not embellish, not get beyond. It's simply, Jesus died for our sins and he was raised. And if we have a firm grasp on that, it will allow us to stand firm in the midst of, of whatever tsunamis come our way. I've always been struck by Billy Graham. You may have heard, I hope you have, heard him speak. When he shares the gospel, it's always simple. He always goes back to the simple gospel. And yet thousands and thousands and thousands have come to Christ through his preaching. Why? Because that's what the gospel does. If it's Proclaimed, thousands of lives are changed. 
and it allows us to stand in the storms of life. Now, why is this so important? Why, why do we need to grasp the simple gospel? Well, because I think my impression is that most of us as believers try to stand on how we feel that God feels towards us or how we feel about ourselves somehow. Like a friend of mine who, whenever she gets down emotionally or struggles with old sinful habits or attitudes, she's tossed and turned and gets hit by debris and is tumbling in her life because she's struggling with God's view of her. But what's she trying to stand on? Uh, again, she's not standing on the simple gospel at that point. She's standing on, well, how am I doing? Am I really obeying God? Well, not well enough. And, I'm, and how, do, how do I feel today? And, you know, that is just going to throw you for a loop. And so Paul wants us to say, no matter how I feel, yeah, I feel out of it today, but you know what? Christ died for my sins. And he's raised. He's Savior and Lord. Because Jesus is Savior and Lord, I can stand firm despite how I feel, or despite the circumstances that I'm going through. God's love for us is not based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus has done. If we could only grasp that, we could stand firm in whatever comes our way. Now, Paul goes on in his last few verses just to give an example from his own life as an example of how the gospel transforms lives. He, he says here, let me just read it briefly, verse 9 and following, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. He says, here's how the gospel worked in my life. I just want to give you a picture from my own life, he says. I want to give you my testimony of how the gospel worked. He said, I was going my own way, and the gospel turned me around and helped me see what a mess I was, how sinful I was. I was persecuting the church of God. I was going against him, and that's what the gospel does. It confronts us with our own need for forgiveness, our own sinfulness. But then secondly, he said, the gospel hit me with the very grace of God, where suddenly I had God's favor. I know I didn't deserve it. I was the least of the apostles. I persecuted the church of God. I didn't deserve it. But the gospel hits you with God loves me. He has favor towards me. His grace is real towards me. And he said, the grace of God empowered me to live life and it turned me around. So now I labor for the gospel. I labor so others can know the good news. That's what, if you've embraced the gospel, if you've moved into that new way of living, the house that God's given you, if you've truly received it, that's what you will see happen in your life. You'll be confronted with your own sin, but you'll be struck with gratitude because you see how great God's grace and favor is towards you and you see God's power beginning to his grace beginning to be lived through you and you begin to live your life for him for his kingdom not for yourself 
You see, if those things aren't beginning to be true in your life, then I would suggest maybe, probably, you may know the gospel intellectually, but you haven't embraced it. You haven't received it. You haven't believed it for yourself. Because when the gospel enters your life, everything changes. Corvin Kuklinski, we had a memorial service for him a week ago, last Sunday. He knew the gospel for a lot of years, but he never embraced it. He never moved in to the gospel and let it begin to change his life. And then a little over three and a half years ago, while he thought he was still in control of his life, he had a terrible bike accident, broke his neck, And since then, the last three and a half years, he lived in terrible nerve damage pain. But God used that accident to change his life and led him to embrace the simple gospel for himself. Three weeks before he died, before God took him home, we don't really know what happened, but it was an apparent heart attack. God just took him. But he sent me his testimony that he wanted to share here at Cole. He said, I can't wait. He watched the baptisms at Easter and he said, I can't wait to be baptized in front of the whole congregation. And in fact, can we do it first service and then tape it so the second service can see it? Because I want to tell the world what God has done. He'd been changed by the gospel. Here's the testimony he sent me. I met God, or shall I say, He met me at the scene of my accident when I was splayed out in the middle of Macmillan Road with a severely smashed neck, completely paralyzed. I always knew the Lord intellectually, but not in my heart. Had it not been for the accident, I would probably still be a lost soul wandering around in the darkness. Several months after the accident, when I was at home convalescing from one of my ten surgeries, I woke up in the middle of the night, got down on my knees, which really frightened Karen because she wasn't sure I would be able to get up even with her help, (laughs) and I asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. My faith has grown by leaps and bounds since then, but I have to admit it's been a pretty rocky road with Satan lurking around every corner waiting to pounce to say nothing of the excruciating pain I have had to endure. I am, however, determined to overcome this disability. You see, Corvin had grasped, received, believed the gospel. He accepted Jesus as his Savior. He died for my sins. And as Lord, he has risen from the dead. God changed his life. He's a modern Paul, I think. And it's true for every one of us in this room. Like Corvin, no matter what road we've been on, even if we're on the wrong road, if we embrace the simple gospel, Jesus died for my sins, my sins, and was raised so he is now Lord, I want to move into the gospel living then your life has changed forever. There are some here, and you may have been going to church for many, many years, but 
as I describe what the gospel does in a life, how it changes it, you're, you're realizing that, you know what? Maybe I've never actually really embraced the gospel and let it do its work in my life. Well, I urge you to not go on longer. Let today be the day when you embrace the gospel, when you say, yes, Lord, you died for me. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I want you to transform my thinking. Corvin did not have physical healing here on earth. But as I said at the service last week, I, I watched over those three and a half years how though he physically declined, his heart was enlarged and grew bigger and bigger as it was filled up with the very grace of God. That can be true for you as well. So I plead with you to not put it off, but to simply say yes, Lord, to the gospel. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, this gospel just seems too simple sometimes. And yet, as we think about it, it's the greatest truth of all of history of all the universe that you chose to come and die for my sins, for our sins. And then you rose again, conquering death forever. Lord, we want to stand firm in life. And I pray if there's anyone here who has not embraced the gospel, truly embraced it and moved into gospel living, that they would do so today, that they would find the freedom that you offer to us of living in your grace, your life, your power forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.